First Baptist Church, Benicia, uh, it is a joy to be here. And you've had a very long tradition and a good tradition of being part of Growing Healthy Churches, which was, used to be called American Baptist Churches of the West. Uh, in fact, you just celebrated 80 years, and that's how long you've been part of American Baptist Churches of the West. Uh, and then there's Matt Scrabick, and you're right, Matt, that was March 2016, that email. And uh, I, I, this is a story that I am so excited uh, to know about, to see being written uh, uh, as a church and as a senior pastor. And it's a, just a delight to be here. Of course, it's always a delight to be anywhere but Fresno. <laughs> you know, I've got to think of it, really, you know. Uh, in fact, the last few Sundays I've been preaching in Modesto. It actually might be worse than Fresno. But um, uh, it's great to be here up in the Bay Area, the nice part of Northern California. And, uh, but it's not just because it's not Fresno. It is a delight to be at a church that has a vision to reach people and to see a community changed and one for Jesus Christ. And not just a community here, but whether it's in Hawaii or elsewhere, uh, we're excited to see and know the story that's being written here in First Baptist. So you can tell, and as Matt has said, I seemingly have a buttery accent. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not from here. Uh, across, the, across the pond where it rains over 200 days a year, and it's green, and there's a price you pay. And we say words like loch and kilt and yaken and fitba and uchaidanu, you know. So uh, Scotland, it's the, it's the tough part of Britain. Uh, even, even the Romans did not want to invade Scotland. They built a wall at the top of England called Hadrian's Wall. They, didn't, they looked over and they saw men with skirts on and they thought, we ain't going over there, you know. Uh, but every, every Scotsman knows the word that birthed our nation. Whiskey. No, I'm only, I'm only kidding. Uh, if you've ever watched Braveheart, okay, uh, you'll know the word I'm referring to, okay. It's, it's the first war of independence, uh, 1296. You guys weren't around, okay. You're, you're just babies as a nation, okay? And yeah, William Wallace, with, uh, sadly played by an Australian actor, uh, uh, with his face painted white and blue, the St. Andrew's Scottish flag, we have two flags, that's one of them, with the haunting war voice of the bagpipes in the background, beaten and about to die, William Wallace, with his last breath, cries, Freedom! That's a powerful word. It's a word that features large in the history of this name. Um, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. You know, land where my father died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountain cry. Let freedom ring. Freedom. The word that started many nations. But I want to talk about another word. A word that has birthed something bigger and greater than this nation, than my nation, than any other nation. And if you have a Bible, uh, it probably will come up on the screen as well, but John's first epistle is where I want to read this morning, chapter 4. And I want to read verses 7 to 11 of John's first epistle. And uh, let me read it to you in the good Queen's English, okay? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is and not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved. Your version of the Bible probably says, dear friends. But the real word, the better word, is this probably slightly strange, old-fashioned word, beloved. But let me get there a little bit later, okay? Uh, my preaching is a little bit like a Scottish road. There's nothing straight in it, okay? So we're going to twist and turn, and if you get to the end before me, can you wait for me? That would be helpful. Uh, I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, uh, that's where the accent got developed, and uh, I sat under the teaching of a gifted Bible teacher uh, who then moved nearer here, John Ottberg was his name, and he wrote a book called Love Beyond Reason, and he l l writes about learning about two kinds of love. There's one kind of love that seeks value in its objects. So this kind of love is a love of people, a love of things, uh, because they are lovable. That's why you love them. So, you know, I love ice cream. I love lazy Saturday mornings. I love apple products. <laughs> I love apple pie with ice cream. I love real football. I love Giardelli chocolate. I love Godiva chocolate. I love Lindt chocolate. I love Cadbury's chocolate. I love Seas chocolate. I love Belgium chocolate. I love Swiss chocolate. I love milk chocolate. I love fruit dipped in chocolate. I love nuts dipped in chocolate. I love chocolate dipped in chocolate. I love chocolate, okay? We love campfires. We love July the 4th. We think it's treason, but you guys love it, okay? We love the Cubs. Some of you love the Giants. We love the Golden State Warriors, you know? Like, we just love Steph Curry, you know? Never met him, but I love him, okay? We love the Raiders. Losing. There is a love, and John Hartberg would write this in his book. I love... There is a love that looks for what is beautiful, lovely, expensive, has status, is successful, dazzling, is lovable. And this love seeks value in what is loved. But there is another kind of love, and that's the premise of his book. There is a kind of love that creates value in what it loves. G.K. Chesterton points it out, I must be loved before I am lovable. Can you remember Beauty and the Beast? Hey, not many of us are beauty. Most of us are beast. Let me just connect with your soul for just a moment. 
being loved before you are lovable is not a natural act. Being loved before you are lovable is not an easy act. Being loved before you are lovable is revolutionary. It's love of another kind. And this is the revolution that Jesus brought into the world. Way before Disney. It was this love that began a strange community that you've been learning about called the church. Beloved. Love of another kind. Love beyond reason, beyond rationale. Love beyond human ability. Love beyond. And the Apostle John the writer of this short letter in the New Testament, John understood beauty and the beast. John was a disciple of Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, he's kind of given a little nickname. And we don't know if he gave him the nickname or whether or not it was given to him. But he was known as the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, of course, Jesus loved all his disciples. Like, we love all of our children. Jesus was, Jesus was a master of the art of love. But it took a particular form when it came to John, the apostle. Uh, N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, talks about this. Most likely, he says, John was the youngest of the disciples. And this is significant, especially in a culture that uh, values age and honor. So, like in our culture, we excuse the youth. Ah, they're just young. But in ancient Eastern culture, maturity, being aged, was viewed with distinction and youthfulness was frowned upon. To be young, to be the youngest in that culture, was to be the least important disciple, the least mature, the, the least valued. But the Apostle John writes, maybe a coded message to his fellow disciples, or a dig at them, I'm the one who Jesus loved. And John writes a lot about being loved and about this other kind of love. And it was so striking that he and the other New Testament writers had to find a new word for it. And they came up with an old Greek word called agape. It had been around for centuries before the church. It's not a new word. But it was an obscure word, and it was a rarely used word in the Greek language. And back in those days, the word was rather bland, rather plain. It just meant to prefer one thing over another thing. But in the New Testament, they seized this word agape, and they filled it with this idea of love of another kind, of a love that doesn't seek what's going to be valued, but creates value. The church did this. The church became all about agape love. So this Jesus took strange, odd types of people and brought them together as this community of disciples. Take a look around. He's still doing it. Strange and odd. Oh. He, he loved the young as much as the old. He treated women equal to men. He loved the community outsider as much as the community insider. He loved the Gentile as well as the Jew. He loved all because it was love of another kind. 
And the church became this community of ragamuffins. The church became this community of love. The church became the possessors and the agents of this new kind of love. And John wants us to understand this. So he begins, Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved. You ever been like the old wedding ceremonies? Dearly beloved, we're gathered here. It can sound something that maybe just pastors say or something rather pious, but, but you have to understand that this little word beloved wasn't just a word. This little word beloved was an idea. This little word beloved changed the world. So, so how do you tell people what this agape love is like? It's, it's so vast, it's so thoroughly different. How do you go about telling people love this new concept, this new thing, agape love? Love that creates value in people. Love beyond. How do you talk about it? Well, there once was a pastor who decided that the congregation were not always getting the point of his preachers. <laughs> that never happens here, but seemingly sometimes in some churches it happens. You know? uh, and this is a cringy pastor joke coming up, okay? Uh, so to help his congregation, he used a visual demonstration. He put four wiggly worms into separate jars at the beginning of the sermon. So one jar was filled with alcohol, and he dropped the worm in. One jar was filled with cigarette smoke, and he dropped the worm in. The third jar was filled with chocolate syrup, and he dropped the worm in. And the fourth jar was filled with good, clean dirt, and he dropped the worm in. At the end of the sermon, the worm in the jar filled with alcohol was dead. And the one in the cigarette smoke-filled jar, dead as well. The one, in the, the one in the chocolate syrup, <laughs> no, it, it was dead also. The one in the good clean dirt, it was thrived, dead. So he asked the congregation, what did you learn from this demonstration? What's the point? And a, a little lady at the back of the church raised her hand and said, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you'll never have worms. <laughs> That's how it's the challenge of speaking, okay? You want to make sure that people understand what you're communicating and that they don't miss the point. And here's this huge, vast, amazing thing, agape. How does Jesus communicate that so people get it? So he does something pretty clever. He heads north. I'm in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus is about to start his entire Save the World mission. And he stands up tall and he gives his first public address as this new rabbi, this new leader in town. And what he does is he communicates this through a visual demonstration. And the visual demonstration is the town that he goes to. Matthew, chapter 4, verse 13 says, He went and he lived in Capernaum, 
which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He knocks his ministry, his proclamation, his agape revolution, and he heads north to the farthest outpost in Israel, a town called Capernaum. Now, now, no one, no one who wants to start a movement starts it in Capernaum. Like, like no one ever came there who was royalty. Herod Antipas, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, he, he ruled the north as a client king. So uh, he was endorsed by the Romans, but he still had to pay them taxes. And he ruled that area, but he didn't live there. He ruled it from the comfort of his palace in Tiberias, licking the shores of Galilee just a few miles from Nazareth. Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator, who ruled that whole country, ruled from the comfort of Herod the Great's palace in Jerusalem. But Jesus, Jesus went to where no one else would go. And he went there as a visual demonstration that what he was about was completely different than anybody else. And to this destitute, forgotten, ignored border people, he demonstrated that what he is about is different than any other ruler, any other rabbi, any other messiah. His agape revolution was different than any other so-called revolution. Now, now, now. I know, I know it's going to be difficult for the people of Benicia to imagine a place that is hot and brown and dry and dusty where no president running for office ever comes to. It's hard for you guys who live in the beauty of the Bay Area with blue skies and the ocean just over the hills but like for us who get the delights of living in Fresno, you know, we get it. We are living in modern Capernaum. You know, it's not, Fresno's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> it's called Bakersfield, you know. But, uh, but in, in Capernaum, alongside the dust, there was poverty and economic hardships. Capernaum was far removed from the urban centers and the market opportunities. There was oppression and there was injustice. Think about it. Capernaum was ruled by Romans with a powerful Herod, Hasmonean dynasty ruling as well. There was, there, was, there was no hospitals. There was disease. In fact, this was also, if you read Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, this was also the land of Naphtali and Zebulun, the Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, there was racial tension. There was ethnic conflict. There was a religious pluralism. Capernaum was dark and hard and forgotten and ignored. If you lived in Capernaum, you felt the oppression. You felt the darkness. A shadow, the shadow of death hung over Capernaum. You experienced a hard, cold, unloving reality. But into that darkness, light was breaking through. Into the hard and the cold was coming agape. And it was breaking through for the Am Haraz. This would be translated, the people of the land. 
The rabbis considered these kinds of people as incapable of understanding the law. And therefore, if you couldn't understand the law of God, you couldn't be a part of God's people. They were viewed as ignorant, backward, uncouth, modern-day commoners. The indigenous people, the migrants, the illegals. Rabbis had a list of six things that were a disgrace for a student rabbi to do. Number five on the list, it was a disgrace for a student rabbi to recline at a table, eat at, at a table with a common person, the Am Haraz. Who you ate with was a social statement. Still is. I wrote some of this message when I was flying coach. Six rows away through a curtain where the first class passengers with their comfy chairs, sipping their complimentary cocktails, eating their complimentary food. They ate, we watched, as we sipped our complimentary small bottle of water with a bag of cardboard pretzels, the snack from hell. Social status. Picture the school cafeteria. There's the jocks table. There's the cheerleaders table. And then Jesus comes along. <laughs> and he messes up the whole order. He invites nerds and dweebs to sit at the jocks table. He makes the outsider the insider. The last. He makes first. And every time he does that, there's a, flip there's a flip response. If the last are made first, then the first, they're no longer first. And the people who were first, the people who were the insiders, they knew who Jesus was preaching at, and they did not like it. Class. And this got Jesus into huge trouble. The Pharisees, the Jewish upper class, they hated him because of who he loved. Because of who he invited in. Because he didn't just love the lovable people. Jesus flipped the social norms. He, he changed the rules. Even the rule of love. I read a fascinating story which quoted a guy by the name of Robert Roberts. Like his parents were creative. But Robert Roberts writes about a fourth grade class in which the teacher introduced a game called the balloon stomp. A balloon was tied to every child's ankle. And when the signal was given, the object of the game was for the students to try to pop everybody else's balloon while protecting their own. And the last child with an intact balloon would be the winner. So this balloon stomp is a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. Everyone else's success diminishes my chances of winning. I must regard everyone else as someone to be overcome, to be pitted against. It's a Darwinian contest. Survivor of the fittest. And the fourth grade class, oh boy, they went at it with Darwinian spirit. Balloons were relentlessly targeted and destroyed. No ones were safe. And the battle was over in mere seconds. And the kid with the only still inflated balloon, the winner, was secretly the most disliked kid in the room. And then Roberts writes, a disturbing thing happened. 
a second class were brought in to play this same game, but it was a class of children with some special needs. And they were also given a balloon and the same instructions. Spectators watched on with a sinking feeling of how their children might take the destruction of their colorful balloon. But something happened. The instruction had been given too quickly for the kids to understand, but the one idea that seemed to sink in was that the balloons were supposed to be popped. But instead of fighting each other off, the children got the idea that they were supposed to help one another pop the balloons. And so they formed a kind of balloon stomp co-op. <laughs> and, and one boy was getting frustrated because the balloon he was going after wouldn't hold still on the girl's little ankle. So she bent down and held her balloon while he stomped it. And then he held his balloon while she stomped it. And on and on it went with big smiles all around as the children helped one another in the great stomp. And when the, when the last balloon was popped... Everybody cheered <laughs> because everybody had won. So, who got the game wrong and who got the game right? Which was the better game? Jesus came and Jesus changed the entire game. No longer love something because of its value but love someone and create in them value. Jesus loved people before they were lovable. <laughs> Will Willman, a teacher and bishop in Alabama, was recently asked about the biggest challenge facing the church and Christians in the next 50 years, and he simply replied, may Christians be half as interesting as Jesus. The revolution that got things started was a revolution, not of freedom, but the revolution of a new kind of love. A love that loves before we're lovable. That kind of love is beautiful. And that's why beauty will save the world. A thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great the pagan monarch of Kiev was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian people. A different Russia than the Russia of today. And he went out, he sent out envoys to investigate the great faiths from the neighboring realms. And one envoy went to the Byzantine Christian capital of Constantinople, the birthplace of Eastern Orthodoxy, one of the great branches of the Christian tradition. And the envoy who went to Constantinople reported to the prince what he had witnessed. And his words went like this here. Let me read them. Then we went to Constantinople. And they led us to the place where Christians were together as brothers and sisters, and they were worshiping their God. We knew no earth whether we were in heaven or earth. For on earth there is no such vision nor beauty 
and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among them. We cannot forget that beauty. When Prince Vladimir heard about the unearthly beauty that they had witnessed amongst Christians, he adopted Christianity as the new faith for his people. He wasn't drawn to it by its apologetics or its ethics or its pronouncements or its doctrine. He was drawn to it by its aesthetics, its beauty. 900 years after Prince Vladimir, one of Russia's most famous writers, Fyodor Dodosky, he wrote these words, beauty will save the world. Time out. Is that how the people of Benicia view the Christians of First Baptist Church? Are they blown away by your love? What? But what's the beauty? Is it the church building? No. Is it the church music? No offense. Is it the church art? Which seems to be missing. Is it church picnics? Yes! It's the coming together of people who would have no reason on earth to hang out together, but they choose to do it. Doctors with their patients and CEOs with their employees and 49er fans with Raider fans and Giants fans with Dodgers fans and people with degrees with people who haven't got their legal papers and single moms and divorced couples with grandparents who are celebrating 50 years of marriage. Those who vote for the right and those who vote for the left. Those who've had abortions and those who march for life. Those who love rock music and those who love country music. No, that's too far. You know, ain't going to get to heaven if you sing through your nose. Don't you love potlucks in the church? They are agape moments. They are holy moments. They are beautiful moments. You and I have been loved even when we were not that lovable. We've all got guilty secrets that haunt us. We've all got history whose shame we work hard to hide. But a new kind of love has invaded earth. A love that creates value. Jesus has come and he started a revolution. And that revolution has a word. And the word is beloved. And don't miss it. Don't miss it. You are the beloved of God. This is the church. This is the local church. This is what First Baptist Church are. You are the beloved of God. Now, hear what John then says, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
He says that because it's too easy for me just to come to church and think, oh yeah, I'm pro-love. I love God and he loves me. It can be easy to catch this incredible grace-filled revolution love that includes whoever reaches out for John, takes hold of it. It can be easy to love the love. But John quickly says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The difficult neighbor. Yeah. The unlovable uncle. Yeah. The selfish co-worker. Yeah. The arrogant boss. Yeah. The family member who pushes all your buttons. Yeah. We also ought to love one another. Now, you guys aren't a black church, so I've got to stop preaching. But there's a whole other, there's a whole other preaching that, guys, that I hope you don't miss. But if you've, if you've grabbed the first part, the beloved part, how could you miss it? Could a church really just take Jesus' love and keep it to themselves? Could we really be that far off the teachings of Jesus? There is a love that creates value. It has been breathed into us. And now may you as the church breathe that love out to everyone. Everyone. Let's pray before we have a closing song by the, the amazing worship team. Father, we know our pasts. We know the kind of people that we were and sometimes still are. We know our selfishness. We know the thoughts we've thought as well as the actions we've done. And yet, despite that, you love us. And with arms wide open on a cross suspended, you invited us to come and receive forgiveness and grace, to have our sins washed, to become white as snow, to no longer live with guilt or regret or shame, but to know the abundant forgiveness through the outstretched arms on the cross of a Savior who bled and died for us and who invites us in love to come to tour, to be His people, representing Him to a world that is loveless. And what could happen, God, if this local church, knowing the agape of Christ, begin to live that out amongst their family and their friends and their colleagues and their neighbors. It's not easy. It is revolutionary. But Father, may we outlive the love that we have received because of Christ, our beloved. In His name we pray. Amen.